0: Um, good morning, my name's Darren. Are you guys here? We're here okay I'm here barely. I went camping this week. <clears throat> I don't camp and uh it, I stayed in a camper, I should say, so I didn't camp for all you campers out there and it hailed the in, like, and rained the entire time and I mean I complained about not having a jacket because I don't have a waterproof jacket. I don't know how to make a fire. no, I do. But it's not the right way. And I was with my my father-in-law, so it was just a massive um, undertaking, to say the least. But it was awesome. Um, I learned something new that I will never camp again. And I love Southern California weather. Um, No, it's good to be here. I made it. I'm glad you guys are here. If you're new with us, we are starting a new series. Um, We're calling it the Resurrection Project. You can't see the project on there, but it's called the Resurrection Project. And um, as we were preparing for Easter, finishing our series, which lasted about a year and a half in the book of Mark, um, we're now moving into a kind of a small series on the implications of the resurrection. And Bill and I thought it was appropriate. Bill, if you're new, Bill is another teaching pastor that teaches with us. On a side note, um, we have three different worship pastors that volunteer and serve here in our church. We, from the beginning when we planted our church, we we said we don't want to build it on one personality. We want to build it on team. I think that's biblical, and I think it um, it's a lot harder that way. But that's kind of the the approach we're taking. That we want to we want to build this community not on one person but on Jesus. And I'm doing it together as the community. So that's what we're doing. Um, but Bill and I, we were talking through what can we do next. Um, we're, we're excited to jump into a, kind of a big series, potentially Ephesians in, in the fall. But the Resurrection Project, these are some of the questions that I had going in my mind preparing for this. How does a group of ordinary fishermen, stonemasons, tax collectors, carpenters, housewives, students, deniers, doubters, abandoners, and failures become a movement? Of an unstoppable force. Seemingly without power, without status, without uh, prestige, a voice, education, capacity, or resource, the church was a small, marginalized, and persecuted group of ordinary, everyday men and women, and it became the largest movement in human history, the church, Christianity. How did that happen? how did it go from about 120 in an upper room to half of the Roman Empire 250 years later? In the midst of persecution. No formal education, no schools, no buildings, nothing. How did that happen? What happened to a guy like Peter, who we've read about throughout the book of Mark? He's stubborn, he's arrogant, he's ignorant, he lies, he denies, he fails. Jesus, over and over and over again. And yet a couple of months after the resurrection, he's... He's in front of the very people that crucified Jesus, proclaiming with boldness and confidence that he had been resurrected, and they took note that he was with Jesus. How did that happen in only a couple of months? Or Paul, orchestrating the mass detainment and murdering execution of Christians in this early movement of Christianity. He's doing that, and then he becomes the leading apostle to the Gentile nations. Where he goes and preaches and plants, plants church all, churches all over the world, and then dies for the faith. How does he? How does he go from killing to dying for the person he was trying to massacre? Philip, we read in Acts, he's waiting tables, he's passing out foods, food to widows, and a couple of of months later, we see him evangelizing an entire city, casting out demons, and healing the sick. Stephen. An ordinary guy with no education stands in front of the PhDs of the Jewish religion and defeats them in argument and becomes the first Christian martyr. How on earth does this church? How does it, how does this happen? That's what the Resurrection Project is about. Um, the Resurrection Project is a look at how God uses ordinary people for His purposes. He delights. And using the everyday mom and dad, the student, the teacher, the business owner, the sales rep, the unemployed, the rich, the poor, the unsuccessful and the successful, the failures of the world and everything else in between, he uses those kinds of people for his mission. The Resurrection Project is a reminder of our mission that we are to partner with God in the renewal of all things. The Resurrection Project is a reminder that the only possible way we can do this, you want to know how the church did this? It's because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Period. Last week, I, I talked about writing chapter five, but it's unfinished. Um, Easter was amazing, by the way. If you missed it, we had a lot of baptisms in both services, and we were able to um, just have a, just a great family time. We had the largest attendance we've ever had. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but I reminded us that that the resurrection simply means we have work to do. We have we have to do it together. Um, And finally, the Resurrection Project is a reminder that we can't actually follow Jesus without each other. So this morning, I just want to give us an overview. Easter Sunday was last week. What do we do now? How do we take this idea that our Messiah has been raised from the dead? How do we look at the story of Easter and and begin to move forward as a community? Um, I'd like to suggest that it does not matter where you are in life where you've been, what you've done, or what state your faith is in. Whether you're questioning, uh, doubting, whether you're failing, whether you're really on the edge. Um, The resurrection community needed each other. The the, the resurrection community needed each other other to get through life. And so I want to kind of simply share some observations from the book of John. So go go to the book of John, we're going to go to chapter 20. And this morning, I'm just trying to give us an overview, some, some of my observations uh, of what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks with this, this whole idea. But I want to I look at John's um, kind of account of the resurrection. I want to give us four snapshots of four different places that people were in. Normally, you know me. I'm digging in. I'm just going to kind of overview this the, a chapter, this particular chapter in Mark, uh, in John. I'm so used to saying Mark. This is going to be really hard for me to move on. So, you guys with me? Okay, let's do this. So, um, four different snapshots. Uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Let's read uh, the first nine verses together. Early on the first day of the week, Sunday... While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. I'm going to give us four pictures of where people are at. I just want to show you the ordinariness of the community of followers following Jesus at this time. So here's one story. And um, what we see is that Jesus goes, or I'm sorry, Mary goes to the tomb. She sees the stones rolled away. She runs back and tells the other disciples. Now, John is writing this story. Not John the Baptist. It's John the Beloved. And an ancient literary device in writing an autobiography or, or any type of story that you were participating in if you wanted to tell the story or the readers that you were in it you wouldn't say your name you wouldn't say John you would make up a name and so John uses the humble title the disciple whom Jesus loved how awesome is that the disciple whom Jesus loved I mean that is just amazing and um, I have this, it's funny, I have this story. There's a girl that goes to our church, and she told me she has f- four sisters. She's the youngest of five. And um, she, they, they all grew up, they're all older than her. She's 27, 28. And um, last year at Christmas, she found out that, she thought her entire life that she was her dad's favorite. Her dad, one time when she was young, said, Amy, I want you to know that you're my favorite. But she found out that her dad said that to all the girls at some point in the story. And they co- had this conversation. They're all debating whether or not they were the favorite. How awesome is that? But here's, here's John's, John's title is that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay, now this is the story of the resurrection. This is the most incredible story ever written in human history. Death has been defeated. Sin has been destroyed. Jesus is raised from the dead. Amazing, But I want to show you how John's personality comes out in this little story. Let's just look at a couple of verses. So he's recording the story of the first experience of those encountering the the confusing reality of the resurrection. Let's look at verse 3. So we know it's John, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Verse 3 says, Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Keep going. Verse, uh, let's go to verse uh, 6. Then, after, after this, first disciple gets there, then Simon Peter came following him, or other translations, from behind. Just in case you didn't know, John beat him there first. He's reminding you a second time. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, three times have you ever heard of a sibling rivalry have you ever had a friend that you just you just compete with I mean this if you don't know me at all here's something about me I've taken the strength finders test if you play any sport any board game if there's anything any possible way we can compete I'm gonna compete okay my number one strength finder is competition I don't know how it's a strength but it is Now, but here's what's interesting. I will find a way to compete for anything. My brother and I, I have a younger brother. He used to lead worship. Mickey and I have these competitions all the time. Mickey and I, when we were younger, used to have competitions on how many Facebook posts we'd get on our birthdays. That's how pathetic we were. We would count. Twitter, Twitter, happy birthday. So don't don't say happy birthday to me. I need to be humbled in this, because I always beat him. Um, But here's the point. Have you ever missed the point? My brother and I, we, something good, we would compete over something good and totally miss the point. What is John doing in the biggest story ever told? He's making sure you know that he got there first. Why? Because he doesn't get it. Because he's like you and I. Because when things are going good, when there's an incredible story to tell, we want to make sure people know that we were there. And not only that we were there, but we got there first. Can you relate to this story at all? It's just a complete, this guy, his name's the beloved, and he, he got there first. Come on, John. Remember, John, uh-oh, hey, keep it down. No heckling the preacher today. Especially from the worship pastor. How does it feel to be a loser? <laughs> I wouldn't know, I haven't lost yet. Um, just kidding. Again, missing the point. I'm just going to keep modeling this for you. Um, but let's let the story of John. Remember, John was probably 14 or 15 when he started as a disciple of Jesus. Just so you know this. So he had some maturity, right? But in the gospel, he reminds us that this wasn't something that happened during the resurrection. Actually, John's personality came out when he was debating, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Am I going to be on the right or left of Jesus? They had some type of ranking going on in the gospel. You read this in the story of John. Read it. And it's even, it's, <laughs> Peter has it too. At the end of Peter, this is so good, we're going to read a little bit about Peter being restored, where Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep, that whole thing. You've heard this story. Well, at the end, G- Jesus says this thing about, hey, when you're younger, you got to go where you wanted to go, but when you're older, you're, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. And it says in parentheses uh, that this is the way, this is what was in order to tell Peter how he was going to die. In other words, Peter's told by Jesus he's going to be martyred at the end, right? So he's restored. Peter's told that he's going to be martyred. He, literally in the Gospel of John, we're not going to read it, but it says this. He's told that he's going to die a martyrdom. And he turns to John and says to Jesus, what about this guy? How's he going to go? That's literally what he's asking. How's John going to go? He's, he, you see this? I mean, it's hilarious. It's it's ridiculous. It's it's funny. It's humorous. It's completely ordinary. It's you and I. Written. It's not glazed over. It's not edited out by the church. It's right there for us to say this guy was completely ordinary. He's going to say that greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends. That you don't know God unless you love. That God is love. Read his other epistles, John's epistles. And what's great is that they had a community to remind them when they were missing the point. I blow it time and time again. I miss the point time and time again. I'm constantly saying, hey, I was there. Remember, I was? I'm, I'm dropping the names. I mean, I'm, I'll be completely honest today. I want to be as honest as possible because I see myself as completely ordinary, just like these guys. But that's why they're in a community. And see, we need to be reminded when we're missing the point that, hey, it's actually not about you being first. It's about Jesus raising from the dead. I need to be rebuked by my wife constantly when I'm missing the point. Are you with me? I need to be in a community that's holding me accountable when I get off track so I can get back on track and recognize that was really petty. Gosh, thank God Jesus is God and I'm not. Amen? One picture is that John is missing it. All right, let's continue in the story. I love this. Chapter, uh, verse, verse 10. Same, same chapter. Then the disciples returned to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, the, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The other disciples go home in the story. Think about it. Why are they leaving? They're they're defeated. They're exhausted. There's questions like, why is this thing wrapped up here and rolled away and this one over here? Where's the body? Where's our crucified, victorious Messiah? He's been defeated. The tomb, the stone has been rolled away. Where is he? They're running away, defeated. Hurting, probably. Anxious. I mean, I don't know. We can just read into it if we want. I'm just trying to tell you the story as a character, per se. But Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, but Mary stayed. She stood behind at the empty tomb. She hung around the empty tomb, weeping. Everyone else laughed, but she stood there. She sticks around. Maybe you're this type of person, you know, the kind of person that sticks around with somebody when it gets hard. Have you ever thought about that? The one that really gets it when things get too hard, when people say hurtful things, when you're under the pressure and seasons of life come and everything comes crashing in, everyone else has gone away because they want to be around you when you're happy and everything's going good, but maybe you're that kind of person that sticks around when there's nothing but a tomb to be around. I love this, because Mary, she sticks around long enough and she, she sees something, Right? It seems like when you, when you hang around an empty tomb long enough, you might actually see something happen. Mary doesn't give up, she doesn't go home. she, she goes right to, she stays at the tomb and guess who meets her Jesus. And I love this, because uh, John's gospel is so fascinating, but his gospel is, is, is Mary confuses Jesus for a gardener. Do you think that was intentional? By John? Yes that is designed to pull us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 where Adam and Eve are supposed to tend the garden of Eden he's say, Jesus is confused as a gardener he's saying he's the new Adam this is the new this is the new Eden this is the new garden Go, this is the new project spread it around but that's a whole side note I love I love the implications there's so much illustration or uh, imagery here in this particular gospel but here's the point um, Mary gets it when no one else does Right? She gets it when no one else does. Do you have friends that stick around when no one else does? When I, three years ago, when my wife first had a heart problem, my wife has a heart problem, um, and she's been doing great the last three months. Thank you for your prayers. We're planning on getting surgery in a couple of months. But three years ago, when it first came, it was so shocking to us. It was terrifying. It was just the worst season. I was, she was 23, I was 24. We were, we just had no idea. We had no capacity to handle this crazy illness. And uh, I remember a significant moment. And it was just like people were coming by and they were praying and talking. And it was great. But there was one time, I mean, just when you're alone in devastation and when you, you kind of want to be alone, do you know what I'm talking about? When, when just everything just pushes in on you. I had some friends come over and they brought a board game and coloring books. They didn't say a word. We just colored together in tears. Do you have friends like that 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 can sit with you? And when this heart problem came back, I mean, it was ama- we have so much, so many friends and so many different people coming in. But there was a night where we we were really having a hard time and. Literally, it was like 8.45 at night, and our friends from our community group came in with their toddler and their three-year-old and just said, we were in the neighborhood. We need to come over just to say hi. And they prayed with us. We laughed. We were playing with their kids. And just, whew. You see, the community needed somebody like Mary that stuck around and that came back and was the first to announce that I saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's one picture. Some of us are here. Some of us are this for our community. Some of us don't even have a community, let alone have people like this in our lives. We need each other each other, to get through life. That's one picture. Let's go to another picture. Remember, this is John's account of what's happened. He's giving us snapshots of what it was like. People missing the point. Who gets there first? People that got it that shouldn't get it. Because remember first century culture. Women, they, they, their testimonies weren't taken for anything. They were considered half-citizens. This is, this is first century. Let's look at what happens um, in verse 24. Um, Jesus then appears to the other disciples, but uh, Thomas wasn't there, so let's read what, what verse 24. It says, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples a week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he, he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, and my God, Jesus said to him, have you, be- you, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe. Of all the stories that John could have told, he tells the story of Thomas. And I love this one because I think all of us can at some point relate to this one. Have you ever been around a community that had experienced something awesome and you just missed it? They just have these inside jokes these conversations going back and forth and, and they had seen the resurrected Jesus and Thomas was out getting food somewhere comes back full with his stomach and they had seen him and Jesus is gone and their response is no we've seen him Thomas and he's like no I've got to touch his hand I've got to touch I've got to see it because I've seen him too I saw him get crucified there's no way unless I touch and feel for myself Let, may it be for me as it's been for you I just want to experience you, Lord. I want to feel your presence. He doesn't get it. He's not there. But guess what? He sticks around for a week with a group of people that got it. With a group of of people that ate a meal with him, that touched Jesus, that felt him, that saw him, that proclaimed they had seen the risen Lord. He stuck around in a community with his doubts. John puts into the text, people were doubting, his closest followers, one of the twelve, were doubting that he was raised from the dead. Does that give us permission? Does that give us permission? Faith is mixed up with all sorts of questions. Oftentimes I wonder why people get healed, why other people don't. Why, in seasons of darkness and confusion, I, I rarely see God? Do you know what I'm talking about? When things get really hard, you wonder why, are, where is God in the midst of this? Why is, why doesn't my life look like it should? If you are real, God, do something about this heart condition. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Right here in the first Easter story, we're given permission to doubt because doubt isn't the opposite of faith. No, we need doubt in our faith. What's the opposite of faith? Sight. Sight. If we see it, we don't need to believe it. We don't need to have faith. Jesus doesn't come to Thomas, why are you doubting me? He comes to Thomas and says, no, I'm meeting you where you are. And I love this, because in Matthew 28, Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus gives us the great commission, it says that they were on top of the mountain and they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then he commissions them to go and disciple the nations, preach the gospel, baptize and all that stuff. It doesn't say he tried to convince them of their doubt. He uses them despite it. I don't think the world is looking for people that are 100% convinced. I just think people, they're looking for people who cannot not follow him. You know the difference? The kind of people that bring their questions and say, Yeah, I don't fully understand. How can you fully understand the Trinity, really? I mean, seriously, if you can come up here and teach that, I'll, I'd be really impressed. The disciples staked everything on the fact that Jesus was alive and they didn't fully understand it. We cease being captivating when we have it all figured out. Quit trying to be troubled about your your doubt. Doubt is a sign of faith. Um, Maybe some of you are here and this is exactly where you are. You don't want to sing songs on Sunday. You want to sit there and not be met by anyone you're an introvert and you want to be alone in the corner in a dark room and you want the curtains closed like I do and it doesn't matter but it's okay to be there Easter message from John gives us permission to doubt it says that Easter isn't pretty and polished it says that um, of all the things we could have been presented on Easter doubt is in there and so it's okay but what it also means is that we need to be in a community where we can have questions where we can doubt We need to be be in a community when we're saying, I don't really know someone next to us is saying, actually, he is risen. I've seen it. You know what I'm talking about? Do you have that type of community? Are you there? Last one, Peter. Uh, Let's go to chapter 21, verse 15. So, um, we've read earlier, a couple weeks ago, I taught on this. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus is being questioned by authorities. He's in the courtyard. And he's asked by somebody in the crowd, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he says no, and then he rebukes her. And he says no again and rebukes her. Then he cusses and and swears an oath and says no, I don't know this man at all. Three times he denies Jesus. Now could you imagine, just real quick, what Peter's thoughts, process would have been when Jesus was raised from the dead? Oh crap. Like, he walks in, he doesn't go through the locked door, because he just goes through, because he has this ability between heaven and earth, he just breaks the gap. And, and I could just see Peter going, oh, shoot, and like, no eye contact. Good to see you, Jesus. Like, cool, I'm going to go wash some dishes over here. Like, just avoiding the conversation that's coming. I mean, he denied him when he needed him the most. He failed him three times. He, he blew it big time. If it was built on character, he failed. He lied over and over and over again after he was told by Jesus he was going to do it. And after he told Jesus he was going to die for him, and he didn't. And of all the things Jesus could have come, all the ways he could have rebuked him, this is what Jesus does. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes. Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said it a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He doesn't say shame on you. He doesn't say, there's no way you can lead this thing now. He says, he doesn't say, you, you blew it, Peter, you're done. He restores him. The three questions are a response to his three denials. Do you love me? Three responses, yes. John. Uh, Jesus is basically, basically saying, great, that's done with. Go forward. Follow me. Follow me. Apparently, the Easter story is that when people blow it, Time and time and time again, when they're addicted to stuff, when they fail forty times, when they when they keep making promises and they don't follow through with it, when they keep blowing it big time, they can still be used because Jesus wants to restore you for His purposes. Apparently, when when the worst types of failures come in response to Jesus, He'll do extraordinary things. Peter becomes the leader of a major movement. You see, it's the restoration of Peter that enables him in Acts chapter 2 to stand up amidst a massive crowd saying that they're drunk off wine and say, actually, no, Scripture says this thing. We're not drunk on wine. We're full of the Holy Spirit. Believe. Cut to the heart. 3,000 people are saved. A couple weeks ago, he was denying it. Now he's proclaiming it. And so the resurrection project is simply a reminder that God wants to use us wherever we are. That some of us are missing it over and over again. And we'll continue to miss the point. But in community, we need to be reminded that, hey, it's really about Jesus. It's not about you getting first. Some of us are the kind of people that are the rocks that we need to lean on in this community. Some of us are pillars of faith that will stand in the midst of ashes when everyone else has left, just sitting there, waiting for us to be reminded that He, in fact, has been risen from the dead. Others of us are just skeptical. We don't fully buy in. Well, that's okay, you're in good company. Their earliest disciples didn't buy in. They doubted. But you need to be a part of a community that enables that doubt and reminds you when it gets really bad that actually He is risen. You can be there. You don't have to sing. You don't have to stand. You might be going through circumstances that are such a, that, are, that feels so much like hell. That the idea of singing to God is just way beyond you. That's okay. We'll sing for you, too. That's what it means to be a part of a church. Others of us, we don't even think we have a right to be in the church. We feel like we've blown it so bad. If you only knew this, if you only knew that. No, that's not true. God uses murderers once they're restored, God uses addicts once they're restored, God uses failures. The story of this particular Sunday is, and the story of John is that um, we see that the earliest community of people trying to, were trying to figure out what the resur- resurrection meant for their lives. And this is what it means to be a part of the church, to be a part of a group of people trying to figure out what the resurrection means for their lives. What does it mean that we have an empty tomb? Where will we go from here? Where will we go with each other? An article came out last week by Newsweek, I don't know if you read it, it said, leave the church and follow Jesus. It's an article kind of bashing the the church, that the church has blown it. Saying people are leaving the church and just trying to follow Jesus on their own as a solitude kind of lone ranger. But the truth is this, I I, I agree, and I'll I'll speak on behalf of the church, that that we have blown it big time. And we haven't lived it out fully. But you can't follow Jesus without being a part of the church. It's going to marry Jesus eventually. But I want to say this. What would it look like for us to to really get it? To allow people to doubt and not make them feel bad but be the support that they need? For us to to be the hands and feet of Jesus? For us to take chapter 5 and write a different story for this city? For our marriages? For our young marriages? For our kids? For our older marriages? For our older kids? For our friends next door? For our neighbors? What if we really took seriously the, the message of Jesus and lived it out? What does it look like for you? We need each other. So I want to just say, the church isn't plan B. It is the plan. You and I, in this room, this group of people, with all of our bumps, with all of our bruises, with all of our failures and mistakes, we are designed to be the people that move the kingdom of God forward and partner with God in renewing all things. That's a lot of power. What are you going to do with it? Good? So I want to invite you, first of all, if you're not in a community group, get in one, period. This is where authentic, intimate relationships happen. This is where people are carried through difficult seasons. It's not on Sunday. How do you carry somebody through the trauma of losing a loved one on Sunday? You can't. You do it in smaller groups. That's why we have missional communities. Our mission, or our, our community groups. Our community groups are not just holy huddles where we sing songs and eat meals together and read the Bible. They're missional instruments in reconciling all things. They're the places where we say, in Long Beach, or in Orange County, or in Redondo Beach, as in heaven. So my res- the response today is to get an intimate community, a community group, here at the garden or someplace else. Amen. Good. Let's uh, let's close out in worship. Let me pray for us as we think about what this means and all of that stuff. Let's close our eyes. Let's just wait on the on the Holy Spirit. We. Uh, you're comfortable just holding your hands out let's just hold our hands out keep our eyes closed we hold our hands out like this if you want to look and and close your eyes just as a posture of wanting to receive it's like when you go to the dinner table and grab hands or close your fists just a posture of wanting to receive and uh, so often as a church we kind of just do the same thing and we want to give space this morning maybe if some of us need prayer or just need a fresh filling of the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians, to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing process, not once and for all. Just invite the Holy Spirit to minister to you right now. We'll just wait. often is so you just keep your eyes closed so excited passionate compassionate to speak to us we just don't create space in our lives to hear him so much stuff in the way there are so many other voices sometimes you just can't hear what he's saying just encourage you just to ask God to speak to you now just say God come Holy Spirit, speak to me. What does this mean? Hey, can we stand together real fast? Stand with me, thank you. You know, we're we're hearing God. I just really feel we need to pray for each other. And so I want to just, I don't even know what it means. But if you're here and you just need prayer, um, would you just come forward? I'm not going to prolong this, but we have a group of people that love to pray for people. If for whatever reason you just felt, man, this message hit me, I I want prayer. We want to pray for you. Would you just come forward right now? Stand up here. Just stand in front. We'll worship. We'll sing. But we're going to pray for people. Maybe you're in that place where you just feel, man, I've been... Thank you so much for being brave. Just come forward right now. Maybe some of you have literally feel like there's no way God can use me, and you're being reminded of that this morning, that kind of where Peter was at. Would you come forward too? Can I have some people from our prayer team, or leadership team, stand right here to pray for this person right now? Thank you. Just come forward, wherever you are. I know it's kind of difficult to respond with such a small group or even with it being so bright but i just want to ask you to be brave if you need prayer i just want to pray god's blessing over you his spirit filling release of of ministry and gifts and freedom and all that stuff let's just have a time of prayer for each other this morning and we'll continue to worship now just come forward as you are